Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open our eyes that we may behold the beauty of Thy law. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hope everyone had a happy Thanksgiving. I know I, I did. Um, it's always a wonderful time. Uh, Thanksgiving has always been important to me uh, to spend time with family and be thankful to God for all that He's blessed us. Um, but it also brings something else to my mind. Uh, especially, and I've noticed this in the last, I don't know, five, ten years, it's got really bad. There are some people who just cannot wait for Christmas. Have you noticed these people? I mean, they just can't wait. Um, they start putting up their decorations uh, November 1st, the day after Halloween. And, you know, it's, it's these people, I've got a neighbor, someone that lives close by. I have to drive by this person's house and see their, the stuff they put up. I mean, I guess it would be, I could tolerate it. If it was actually nice decorations, but they got all these big inflatables, you know, and if you have the inflatables, I'm not trying to offend, but I'm just not a big fan of the inflatables, especially the ones from the movie Frozen, the snowman, you know. I just don't, I don't care for that stuff uh, at Christmas, uh, this Christmas season. But, you know, these, these things have got really bad, uh, and it's, it's in the past few years, it's the can't wait for Christmas uh, people. Um, I'm not really uh, a big fan of those things, but and of course, what I'm trying to say, the, the decorations, those things are rather superficial, I know, but it does illustrate, I think, an important point, and that is, Chris, it's all Christmas for us and no waiting. All Christmas, no waiting. The importance of Advent, if you're not used to the Anglican tradition or the church calendar, um, the importance of Advent, is, and, and by the way, Blue Stole, first Sunday of Advent, Je Jeff, Father Jeff over here is wearing a black. Last year I wore a purple stole the first Sunday of Advent when I preached. And he, he gave me heck for that. And now I have a blue stole and he's wearing black. Just Anyways... I just thought of that. It's Advent. It's Advent. And what's important about Advent is the waiting, the anticipation, the longing for the coming of the Christ. The longing for new creation. The fulfillment of all God's promises. It's the waiting that we're a part of right now. Advent, for us, practically, is more important. Because it's, this is what we're in. We are in the waiting period. Advent is always one of the more, more interesting church seasons because we prepare, we wait, we hope, and we long for Christmas Day. We long for the Lord's coming. We look forward and backward. And you notice this in our, church, in our readings, in our liturgy. When we read the scriptures, most of the time during Advent, this is when we talk about the end times. It's all the end times passages. Forward to the second coming, and we look backward to the waiting and longing for the Messiah's first coming. 
Advent forces us to confront a very difficult reality, and that is the fact that the scriptures, uh, the, the old, the, the prophecies, and the, uh, the the apocalyptic passages in the Bible are very difficult and mostly misunderstood. We long to make sense of God's future plans for ourselves. But the one thing I think is very clear from Mark 13 is that it's been fulfilled. We live in the aftermath of its fulfillment. I'm going to say that again. It's been fulfilled and we live in the aftermath of the fulfillment. Christ has been vindicated just as he said he would be. And we, the people of God, wait and long for the vindication of all creation. That is the one thing left. Christ to come again the same way he left and to perfect what he started. A few years ago, I heard one Anglican scholar talk about an email he received about his systematic theology he had written. And it was a critique of his work from someone who said that um, he lacked any eschatology. Now that's the fancy word for end times. That his work was void of anything substantial when it comes to eschatology. And he also mentioned that you tend to be like all you Anglicans, you, you lack any end times. Now, and especially after today, I'm actually going to play into that um, Anglican eschatological stereotype. Because you're going to probably, after I'm finished, and you can disagree with me, that's fine. You're going to think, well, what is the, what, what, where's, you know, my goal is not to destroy all your, um, your, your timelines and your arrows and downs and points and all the graphs that are, that are designed by folks who with great imaginations. But I can assure you the message of Mark 13 stays the same. Be ready. Stay awake. Without an understanding of Old Testament prophecy, there is no way you can understand Mark 13 or anything said about prophecy in the New Testament. Unlike those people who put up Christmas decorations on November 1st, the Old Testament folks that during the prophets, those prophets and all the folks living in that day and time, they were used to waiting. In fact, a lot of what the prophets have to prophesy about and say is in the context of waiting and longing for the Messiah. They longed for exile to be over. And that if there's anything that they were longing for and desiring in the future, it was for exile to be over. They longed for God to give them justice and peace. They prophesied about the day of the Lord coming. Judgment coming not only on Israel, but the nations. And God's future reign coming to earth. For example, Ezekiel, exiled, sat on the banks of that canal near Babylon. And he sees a vision of God's glorious presence. The glory of God had left the temple and moved with the people to Babylon. It was there on the banks of that stream that Ezekiel, suffering and wishing for things to be different, saw a little bit of God's plan. Judgment on Jerusalem. Vindication for the faithful. And the hope 
of an eternal Jerusalem characterized by God's presence, just like the Garden of Eden. Jeremiah had said that the Babylonian exile would only last 70 years. And so the question was, at that point, when the 70 years were up, so the messianic kingdom is now, right? So the kingdom of the Messiah will start. And then, when you get to Zechariah, Zechariah answers that question. And the question is answered like this. God shows Zechariah in dreams and visions that the messianic kingdom and when it starts is not for us to know. It's just important for us to believe and know that it's going to start. Some point in the future. What's important is knowing that God will bring His kingdom. And what's clear from Zechariah's vision is the rebuilding of the second temple is only a partial fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel. I mean, Ezekiel has measurements and, and a, this, this picture of what the next temple would look like. But it wasn't fulfilled. It was kind of only a partial fulfillment. Zechariah is... In his vision, he sees that the Messiah will come to Jerusalem humble, riding on a donkey, but will be rejected. But the rejection doesn't last. Evil is confronted. God's enemies are destroyed. And Jerusalem becomes the center of the, peop the nations, the people who want to enjoy God's presence. <clears throat> the dreams and visions of Daniel Help us to see that kingdoms come and kingdoms fall. But only one king, kingdom will stand. And that is the kingdom ruled by the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man. Just like Daniel and his friends persevere in exile, they stand up to all the temptations that are put before them. So we also need to be people who are faithful to God, who obey God in difficult times. Daniel's visions clearly prophesy the kingdoms of Persia under Cyrus and Greece under Alexander the Great. What's clear is that Daniel's prophecies are fulfilled in these kingdoms coming. Persia, Alexander the Great, and his generals. Ptolemy, Seleucus, who at one point in time, his generals who had ruled over Palestine. All those things were fulfilled. Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, he gave this, himself this name, God manifested. He is the one that Daniel prophesies about, the abomination of desolation. He desecrates the temple by offering up a sow on the altar at Jerusalem. Daniel's prophecy is fulfilled but only partially. Because if you think about it, there is greater fulfillment in the Roman desecration and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Sure, a little bit of this will be controversial, but I think that Mark 13 has already been fulfilled. And in its fulfillment, Jesus has been vindicated. It is evidence that He was who He said He was, and He sits where He said He would sit, at the right hand of the Father. Mark 13 is in the context of Jesus telling His disciples that
the temple would be destroyed. Let's set, set the scene. It's Passover week. A couple of days before his death on the cross. And they're leaving the temple area there in Jerusalem. And for you, those of you who know the geography, it will help to see this in your mind. They're leaving the temple area and they're going through the gate that is now it's filled in. If you look at pictures of modern day Jerusalem, the, the Muslims, they filled it in. The eastern gate, the golden gate as Christians know it. They're probably leaving out of that gate down to the temple, heading down to the Kidron Valley and about to walk up the Mount of Olives, the hill there, and head toward Bethany where they'd been staying for the week. And as they're leaving the temple, the disciples say, Lord, what great stones, magnificent stones and magnificent buildings. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, not one of those stones will be standing soon. They're coming down. They're going to be destroyed. The disciples had to have been kind of taken aback by that statement because remember, in their minds, they're thinking, Triumphal entry just happened a few days before that, right? The fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus riding into the, into the, uh, the, the town there on a donkey. Prophecy fulfilled. He will be taking the throne by the end of the week. But no, he says, this is coming down. As they walk through the valley and are starting up the Mount of Olives, they sit down and they're looking over on top of the temple area there. And four of the apostles asked Jesus, when will these things take place? When? Boy, that's the question often, isn't it? When will these things take place? Did Jesus then explained the signs of when these things would take place and emphasized staying alert and awake and being careful during the experience. Jesus explains that war, famine, natural disasters, false prophecy... False messiahs, betrayal, persecution of Christ's followers will characterize the time period. Jesus uses the language from the prophecies of Daniel to explain the time. Our text today, verses 24 through 37, is part of the prophecy where Jesus, it gets very cosmic. Jesus talks about the sun, the moon, and the stars being darkened, the stars falling all these cosmic pictures of social and political upheaval. Social and political upheaval in first century Jerusalem. These are typical Jewish apocalyptic metaphors. Such metaphors are necessary to explain the pain and suffering of a generation. When you lose everything important to you, family, friends, work, even the very center of your religious life, the temple. When you lose these things, it, can, it is only fitting to describe these painful experiences with cosmic imagery. The universe falling to bits. For the Jewish person... The day of Jerusalem's destruction would certainly be looked at as a cosmic catastrophe. Much like a heartbreaking event in your life 
could be seen and compared to the Death Star blowing up Alderaan in Star Wars. Right? I mean, honestly. When your heart is broken, it's as if a planet has just been blown up. A serious disturbance in the force. Two little details stand out as unique and don't seem to fit to me in the prophecy about Jerusalem's first century destruction. But a little look at them make, that helps make them make sense. The coming of the Son of Man on the clouds and the gathering of the elect from the four winds. First off, Jesus hasn't changed the subject. He's talking about the destruction of the temple. He is still talking about first century events. And the coming of the Son of Man in the clouds seems obvious, right? Jesus is going to return in the same way that he came. But you have to remember this little word, coming, also means going. Okay? It seems to be a reference to his vindication and exaltation to the right hand of God the Father. It fits in this context. The judgment of Jerusalem goes hand in hand with their rejection of Christ, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and finally his glorious ascension in the clouds to the right hand of the Father. The angels gathering the elect from the four winds is an obvious reference, it seems to me, to the return from exile. They are gathered, it says, from the north, the south, east, and west. And Jesus is referencing Deuteronomy 30. Here, when Israel is promised to be brought back from exile after they repent. Jesus being vindicated is joined together with the idea of exile being over. It was the question that prophets like Daniel wrestled with. How long will we remain in exile? Jesus tells them these things will take place in their generation and emphasizes that they stay awake and be vigilant because they don't know when these things will happen. In Matthew's version, he adds that there will be two people working, two people doing that, and one will be taken. It seems to be, for a lot of people in North American Christianity, be an obvious reference to the rapture. But it's clear in the context that the person who is taken is taken in judgment. And then Jesus states very clearly, like I said, in Mark's gospel, that it would happen in that generation. Christ stands victorious. He is avenged. The temple being brought down by the Romans being proof that he sits at the right hand of the Father in victory. An assurance to us that he will return again and have victory over our earth and establish his kingdom forever. What's clear is that the, God will judge the nations of the world, including Jerusalem, for its own wickedness. And in the future, bring about a kingdom of righteousness ruled by the Messiah. The promise is that God will rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. The second temple and the walls of the Jerusalem, walls built by, in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, 
That was only a partial fulfillment. And those, that temple and those walls were brought down. They were never meant to be the ultimate fulfillment of the promises. There is a shrine right now sitting on the Temple Mount of Jerusalem. There is a Muslim mosque on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. There are walls that surround the city. But the eternal temple and the eternal walls that will one day exist there are nowhere to be found. The real important thing is that there is a temple not made by hands. Listen to me now. There is a temple not made by hands that stands strong. And of that temple, he said, destroy it and I will raise it up in three days. The Olivet Discourse of Mark 13 answers the question, when? When will these things happen? And likewise, the second coming of Christ, people ask the same question, when? And it's a lot easier to answer the what, right? The what is resurrection. We know there will be resurrection. Death will be swallowed up in victory. No more tears. Eternity with Jesus. Reigning forever with Christ. The what is easy to answer. It's the when that people want to know. And scripture is very clear. No one knows. No one knows. At any time is the scripture's answer. A thousand years is like one day for God. And the New Testament has this balance. The New Testament's balance of it could happen at any time. It could happen soon. It could be a thousands of years from now. No one knows. But we do know three things must happen first. First, Jerusalem and the temple must fall to the Gentiles. That's happened. Secondly, sin and evil will continue and grow in the world. That has happened. But third and finally, the gospel must be preached to all nations. God desires to seek and save the lost. God wants His elect from every tribe and tongue. It should be no wonder to us, it, we should not be surprised, that immediately before Jesus ascended to heaven, in the context of the when question, right? The apostles are ready for the kingdom, the messianic kingdom, to start right then and there. And what does He tell them? It's not important for you to know times and epochs. It's not for you to know when the kingdom will be established. Instead, it's important that you preach. It's not important to ask when. It's important that you proclaim the gospel. And that's what he, how he left him. Preach the gospel. Jesus commissioned his disciples to preach to all nations, being His messengers, gathering the elect from every corner of the earth, if you will. The past 2,000 years of history confirm what Jesus prophesied in Mark 13. There will be wars, natural disasters, etc., until He returns. There will be false teachers, antichrist, false prophecies, 
And in terms of church history, there have been many heresies that have plagued parts of Christendom and continue to do so, especially in North America. Seems to be a breeding ground of false teachings about the end times. There have been even movements outside of Christianity to try to deny the second coming of Christ, deny who Christ was. I'm thinking particularly of a movement that started in the 7th century who says that Jesus was just a man and a prophet, not the crucified and resurrected Son of God. And for a long time they've had a place of worship upon the holiest of places, the Temple Mount. In its first century fulfillment, the temple was destroyed. In its greater fulfillment, God will destroy his enemies and put all things under his feet. In its original fulfillment, Christ coming on the clouds was intended to be a reference of him coming into the heavens to reign at the right hand of the Father. In its greater fulfillment, he will come again the same way he left. He will bring with him new Jerusalem and we will reign with him forever and enjoy God's presence forever. The present state of Jerusalem points us to anticipate and look forward to the day which Christ returns to set things right by defeating the powers of evil and reign forever. During this Advent season, let's reflect on the sufferings and longings of God's people throughout the ages. Let us reflect on how Israel longed for the end of exile and for the coming of the Messiah. During this Advent, remember how the church has been persecuted throughout the last 2,000 years, longing for redemption. And when you suffer, and some of you are suffering Right now, when you suffer, remember your suffering in light of God's eternal purposes. That it will be over one day. It will be over and you will be in His presence forever. Although it's tempting and understandable to ask God why. Rather ask God How long, O Lord? How long? Like the psalmist in Psalm 80. How long will you be angry with our prayers? How long will you not hear us? The psalmist longs for restoration and revival. He longs for healing and renewal. He reflects on how God saved them in the past and then says, God, restore us, save us again. And that's got, that must be our prayer. How long, Lord? Restore us. Save us. Jesus' message to us this morning is the same as it was as he sat there on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. Stay awake. Be alert. Don't let things take you by surprise. Don't let false teachings and false prophecies overtake you, especially about the future. Fear of the end times has been a bad characteristic in the last century of the church. It's called some Christians to do illogical things. We don't live in fear. We walk by faith 
in Christ and live in the power of the gospel. As we walk by faith in Christ, the present state of the world, even Jerusalem itself, points us to the fact that what Jesus said before he was crucified just a few days before is evidence of his vindication and exaltation. We must stay awake and stay vigilant so that when the Master returns, we will not be found sleeping. This doesn't mean endless speculation about the times and signs about the times. Staying awake means not falling victim to false teaching and prophecy. Staying awake means not being tied to buildings and physical structures because they will collapse. Staying awake means being close to Jesus, having a relationship with Him. All the things of the earth will end, but His kingdom will last forever. The destruction of the temple wasn't a sign that He abandoned His people to the Romans. No, it was rather proof of His victory on the cross. He promised He would be with us always through the Spirit. Just as Ezekiel saw the glorious presence of God there in Babylon with Him. We know we have the Spirit of God with us. Given to us by Christ who gained the victory. Sometimes when I look at pictures of modern day Jerusalem. Now for some reason I love to look at pictures of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. But what it fills me with is the feelings of today, longing, the waiting. And as I look at pictures and I see the Dome of the Rock and Al-Aqsa Mosque there, it fills me with longing. But we should not despair because there is no temple in Jerusalem. We should not despair because there is another religion being practiced on the Temple Mount. Because there's a little church... There's a little church not far away. You don't really see pictures of it. You always see the shrine there, the Dome of the Rock. There's a little church just a little ways away. And in that church is a dug-out cave, really. It's a tomb. And that tomb is in the church of the Holy Sepulchre. And guess what? The tomb is empty. And the empty tomb that sits there on Zion is evidence and proof for us that the real temple has been raised. An everlasting temple. A temple in which we find communion with God. We have eternal victory and hope in Him. And one day, He will ride west into Jerusalem through that gate and we will be with him forevermore. Amen.